Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to a podcast that we're calling Living Water, where we're seeking to find old stories and new stories in the Bible through the lens of water or the lack of it. And in this podcast, I'm going to try to make a connection that crosses 2,000 years. We'll see how I do. But before we get started, I want to remind us of something I call the principle of repetition, which simply means that stories happen again and again and again. My favorite example of this is what happens in Luke chapter 7 as Jesus heals a widow's son in a little town called Nain, raises this kid back from the dead. And gosh, everyone marvels at this, and they call Jesus a prophet, which seems like a downgrade from son of God, say, except they haven't heard from prophets in a long time. And Elisha did this very same thing 800 years before, 1 Kings chapter 4, 8, in the same town. It's a repeat of the same story, which is remarkable because the Bible's not a book per se. Rather, it's a library of text written over a thousand years by a thousand different people covering a very long time. So in this episode, I'm going to try to connect two stories that are 2,000 years apart for the purposes of showing that one, some things never change. Two, if God did something once, God will do it again. And three, the stories of the Bible are the stories of us. We'll begin in the southern part of Judea, deep in the Negev Desert, what is now called the Negev, in the biblical city of Beersheba. Beersheba is an important place. It's mentioned 33 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's often used as a border, such as from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. The name Be'er means well, and Sheva means oath, and there's a well that you can see today. Now, there's no way to tell if this is the well found in the Bible, but finding water made it a home for Isaac, the patriarch, and his family. And upon finding this well, he was able to swear an oath with a Philistine king, just as his father did before, Abraham. And you can read it in Genesis chapter 26. I'll read two verses right here. From there he went up to Beersheba. And that very night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid. For I'm with you and will bless you and make your offspring numerous for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And Isaac's servants dug a well. Well, there's a well. So while Isaac was finding water security for his family through this water source, something terrible happened, although he didn't know it at the time. Something terrible was happening in Isaac's little family in Beersheba. A tragic split between his two twin sons, Esau being the oldest, Jacob the youngest, Esau being the heir, and it happened this way. It's just a page back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, beginning with the 29th verse. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Now Esau would quickly forget what he had done, but Jacob never did. 
And in time, Jacob would steal the blessing. Hey, let's recap what we know, right? Isaac was old and blind, so Jacob puts on a show. He puts on his brother's clothes. He puts skins on his arms to pretend to be hairy. He brings in savory stew that his father would like, and he tricks his father into blessing him. And you can read all about it in Genesis chapter 27. And this is a good time to remember something that we've been learning about the power of words in the Bible, people living in the Bible. Hebrew is a word-poor language with only, say, 4,000 words, as opposed to English, which might have a million words in common usage, so that words are sacred and they are carefully guarded and blessings can't be taken back. So Esau would arrive late and he would rage because he found out that the blessing had been stolen. Jacob was the younger. He had no right to it. And yet now it was lost, and it was feared that Esau would kill his brother. So Jacob would run. Now, we know more about Jacob than just about anyone else in Scripture. We know Jacob as a baby, and then childhood, and then young adulthood, adulthood, middle age, even old age, etc. In Genesis chapter 28, while Jacob is on the run at a place called Bethel, which means the house of God, Jacob would have a dream, angels ascending and descending up and down a ladder, representing the Jacob that was and the Jacob that was not yet. And in time, Jacob would grow. Now, Esau, Esau's another story. We don't know much about Esau, except he wasn't fit to carry the blessing. We can see it in this story, right? Esau was a man ruled by his appetites. Esau despised his birthright. Esau lived in the moment. Esau didn't plan ahead. Esau even married foreign women, which was a big no-no while you were trying to keep your little family pure and apart from the world. Esau lived by his appetites, and Esau's descendants would be called Edom or Edomites. Now, hold that thought. We're going to fast forward 2,000 years from Isaac's well and Jacob and Esau, some 40 years before the birth of Jesus. An astute politician named Herod survived a struggle for the mastery of Rome and emerged becoming a client king of Caesar Augustus and eventually the third richest man in the world. The Romans even gave him a title, the King of the Jews, and his name was Herod the Great. Herod was a builder and with massive projects, he controlled commerce. By constructing a major port along the Mediterranean and using newly invented underwater concrete, he would construct a mighty city called Caesarea Maritima, where Herod would connect ships laden with goods to caravans laden with treasures. It was a money machine filled with chambers of commerce and a pleasure dome featuring a racetrack. It was also later the residence of the Roman governors, and in 1961, a damaged block of carved limestone was found with an inscription bearing Pontius Pilate's name. It was found on the site. This was so significant and groundbreaking because we mention Pilate in our creeds on Sunday, not because we want to bang on Pilate for being the cowardly judge of Jesus, but because Pilate exists in human history just as Jesus Just as God so loved the world, he gave his only son in time. So this confirms that the story is a real-time event. And also near the end of the book of Acts, we're told that St. Paul was also imprisoned there at Caesarea Maritima for two years, and he could have even written his letter to the Philippians from there. I like to imagine Paul languaging under house arrest and within earshot of the great racetrack built to attract even more business 
It's like spending time in jail in Vegas. Herod not only controlled commerce, he also controlled the religion by transforming the second temple, which was the temple that was rebuilt after they returned from exile some 600 years before Jesus' birth, and a modest structure, I might add, into the wonder of the ancient world. It all began with the mountain itself. The mountain was turned from 17 acres to 35 acres. In effect, a tabletop structure you can see today. It dominates the Jerusalem skyline. Construction began in 20 BC and then lasted for about 46 years and was generally regarded as the largest construction project of the first century anywhere. And you might find it interesting that for all the grandeur, God never wanted the thing. An important passage of Scripture that is rarely discussed is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4-9. through 9. And I'll paraphrase first by telling you that this happens at a time when King David is installed as a king in his newly uh, rebuilt capital city of Jerusalem, and he's on top of his game. He's got 12 unified tribes. He's got plenty of money. He's got royal wives, and he's just got it going on, and David has an idea. He wants to build God a house. So he tells the prophet Nathan, who agrees at first, but then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan in the night, and God says that a house is a big no-no. It goes like this, 2 Samuel 7, verse 4. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Whenever I've moved among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name the name of the great ones of the earth. He would give David a name, but he didn't want a house. And in time, time would prove that God was right on this one. David would not build the house, but Solomon would build the house. So that Solomon would split the kingdom over the house. They would split over the cost of the thing and jealousy of the northern tribes over the thing. So that around 900 years before Jesus' birth, what had been one country now became two countries, Israel in the north with 10 tribes in the north and and, and Judah in the south, the two tribes in the south, and containing the house. And then the house would put little Judah into the crosshairs of foreign armies. People would want the house, and they would, they would cry over the house. The prophets would warn them that the house was a distraction because they would go to the house, but they weren't doing right. They were following other gods and cavorting to the fact that they made the house ugly. Uh, Jeremiah would call it a den of robbers, just as Jesus would call it a den of robbers some 600 years later when he overturned the money changers. And then on the saddest day on earth, which is Good Friday, Jesus dies in the shadow of the house and the veil of the temple, the veil that would separate the Holy of Holies from where the people would be, the place where God lived was torn from two from top to bottom. And God said, in effect, I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I never wanted this house. I want you. Someone once asked me in a Bible study, where are the instructions for the tent? I said, well, half the book of Exodus is all about that, how to build the thing, what size to make the thing, what color to stitch the thing. Uh, God's intention was for us to have a religion that's very uh, dedicated but nimble. And then they asked, well, where are the instructions for the temple? And I said, there are none. 
Solomon built a temple. Solomon had good taste. Solomon built something pretty. But only when Solomon agreed to follow God, God said, I will dwell in this house if you keep my commandments. He never wanted that house. But Herod built the greatest one ever. Okay, so we to recap, Herod has controlled commerce. He's controlled their religion. And finally, like any good despot, he controlled their defense in the form of a superweapon known as Masada. I've always been impressed with Masada as a fortress palace high atop a flat top mountain beside the Dead Sea. In the years 73 to 74, uh, the first Jewish-Roman war was recorded to have ended there with the mass suicide of 960 rebels hiding on the top. But what is truly staggering is the water. The mountain is literally a Swiss cheese creation of 12 giant cisterns hollowed out of the mountain, holding a capacity of 100 million gallons. This is almost unimaginable in this place, in the crack of the earth called the Jordan Rift Valley, down by the Dead Sea, lowest place on planet earth, with so little water. What Herod did in his own genius is he caught the winter rains, which is also called the wash. Winter rains would, would fall upon a place like Jerusalem, high atop the, the, the plateau, and as the, as the torrents would wash down the wadis, he carved channels that would capture this very rare water. And so instead of going into aquifers, which would make oases in the desert, it would go to his Swiss cheese mountain and store it. Herod literally defied nature for his own ends. He was quite the builder, and he had enough water for a thousand people to live at Masada for 10 years. Herod, he used this water for swimming pools. That's Herod, third richest man in the world, a man with so much power he could even control nature. It wasn't silver and gold how he showed off his wealth, but with water. And as a builder and a despot, he controlled their commerce, their religion, and their defense. Oh, but there's another thing to add. He was vile. He murdered his own children and his favorite wife. Caesar Augustus was reported to say, that he would rather be Herod's dog than to be Herod's son. Matthew's memory of Herod slaughtering the innocents of Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2 is not recorded outside of Scripture, but the slaughter of the babies of Bethlehem is entirely in keeping with his own personality. And here we see at the time of Jesus' birth, they were living in a nightmare world with a nightmare king. Here's the kicker. Did you hold that thought? The king of the Jews wasn't even Jewish. He was from Edom. Herod is a glimpse of what happens if Esau got the blessing. Well, in time, and not long after Jesus' birth, Herod would die. He would die diseased and alone. He lived and died by his own appetites. Which brings us to a postscript of sorts. In John chapter 13, at a quiet meal and on the last night of his life, Jesus modeled something for his disciples unprecedented for a rabbi or any other leader. I'll read it to you. This is John chapter 13, beginning with the first verse. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, They had come from God and was going to God. He got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. 
And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Here in the shadow of the wonder of the ancient world built by Herod himself, Jesus would wash his disciples' feet. The washing of feet was such a dirty and menial task that only slaves had to do it, and even Jewish slaves were exempt. But God so loved the world, he became one of his own creation. He showed us that to live, we must die to self. To be served, we must serve. To have joy, we must give. And never live by our appetites. What began with a nightmare king ended with a savior showing us that by dying, we truly live. So that's our lesson in Esau and Herod and appetites and the blessing going to someone who could grow. Which brings us to a question. It's a personal one, really. Which appetites of ours, if left unchecked, would destroy us? Thanks, everybody. See you next time. My name is Ann Todd. I am here today because it is stewardship season at St. Luke's. And in this time, I've been thinking a lot about joy and the joy of giving back. St. Luke's has always been a big part of my life. My parents, Hans and Jeanette, found a home here. And as a result of that, this community watched me grow up, welcomed me back when I returned to Birmingham, has welcomed my husband, Sam, and has embraced us as we're raising our son, Charlie. This place is family. And in all the years I've been a part of this community, it has become very evident to me that if you look for joy at St. Luke's, it will not take you very long to find it. This is a church that embraces every opportunity to rejoice. We ring the bells to celebrate new marriages and welcome new babies. We host lawn parties in Crestline Park, EYC car washes, and jazz concerts at Christmas. We pray over our children's backpacks. We bless our family pets and we have a donkey parade on Palm Sunday. Everyone is welcomed with energy, with music, with laughter, and with great food. The energy here is impossible to miss. Our church is also quick to support one another in hard times. St. Luke's is faithful in prayer for those suffering from grief or trouble. We collect protein bars for Sawyerville, winter coats for Grace Woodlawn, water bottles for friends displaced from Jackson, We volunteer as stair reading tutors and Founders Place friends, and we serve meals at the firehouse shelter. We opened our doors for community prayer following tragedy at St. Stephen's, and we face dark news from Memphis by hosting a morning run to remind the world that light always prevails. The joy that inspires us in happy times is the same abiding joy that carries us in hard times and guides us towards healing. It's the confidence in knowing who we are, but also whose we are. In the book of Galatians, St. Paul says that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and we all know that the Spirit moves at St. Luke's. It's why we come to the communion table. It's why we pick up dinner on Wednesday nights. It's why we stream services on YouTube when we're out of town and listen to the Jericho Road podcast on the way to work. It's why we can feel generations of prayer in this building, and why we delight in the footsteps of our children who feel so loved and so safe in this place. Gratitude for all of these things is the foundation of our joy. And that gratitude is what moves us to give back. Stewardship is an important part of life at St. Luke's. 
The gift of your dollars keeps the light on here, but it also keeps our talented clergy and staff able to provide the programming that fulfills us. It supports our amazing choir and our children's and kitchen ministries. And before any of those day-to-day operations are budgeted, our church commits funding to community partners. So we're a part of fighting hunger and responding to homelessness, to providing medical care and improving education in the greater Birmingham area. It's the gift of your time, your talent, and your treasure that makes this place thrive. So I hope you'll join me and my family in pledging this year. If you're new to this or you've never given before, you're not alone. The door is always open. It's never too early or too late to make stewardship a part of your spiritual practice. And if you've been in the habit of giving to the church but have never really thought about filling out a pledge card, I encourage you to think ahead this year. Our leaders are very efficient at running this church, and the information on our pledge card gives them what they need to know to plan a responsible budget and to live out our full potential as a beacon of hope in this community. Stewardship is a beautiful act of gratitude, and giving back to this community that we all love is a joy. So who's with me? We are. Thanks be to God.